On this episode, Squiggle Factor, Gimbals, and so you think you want to make a hiking documentary, don't you? Welcome to the Almost There Adventure Podcast. hosts, Severia Tilden, Jeff Hester, and Jason Fitzpatrick. Well, for this episode of the Almost There Adventure podcast, we have a special guest, Chris Smead from Almersive Films, and he has just cut a new film out called Highline, which is about an experience that uh, five friends had over 10 days on Utah's uh, Highline Trail in the Uinta Mountains. And uh, he's done a number of other films. He's a avid outdoorsman, backpacker, hiker. So Chris, uh, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's really great to, to have you. I, ha- I have to say that I, I did get a chance to see Highline. It's just come out uh, a few days ago from when we're recording this and uh, really enjoyed it. I think that there's you know, I'm, I'm, it piqued my interest in the Highline Trail, but it also expressed sort of the healing powers of the wilderness and the outdoors and, and how that transformed each of these five guys. I, that was kind of surprising to me. Yeah, I think a lot of people, actually, I'm hearing that a lot. It seems like a lot of people are really surprised that it's not just like an outdoor documentary. It's not just about, you know, the beauty of the trail. It's, it goes heavily into the backstories of the five people in the film and what made them who they are today and why they know each other and why they're out there on the trail. And I think, uh, yeah, that surprised a lot of people, but overall it seems to be going well. I think, uh, because that it tends to, it's been appealing to people that don't even like hiking. So I'm happy about that part. Mm, yeah, that's true. So people who've had a shared experience with uh, PTSD, for example. Yes. Well, I was going to ask Chris, um, not having seen it yet, um, and without giving too much away, how did these five people come together? Like, what was sort of what what brought these in five individuals together? Well, you yeah. gotta watch the, You gotta watch the movie. I know, I know. But... <laughs> Just broad strokes. Broad strokes. Um, it's it's kind of a crazy story. So a guy named Joe Velasco, he started a company called Z-Packs, which is fairly well known in the hiking, in the backpacking world at least. And uh, through that company, it wasn't just about the company, but the company just brought those people together. He hired somebody and then he made a friend there and then they hired somebody else. And then through the company, they met a few other people. So the Z-Packs was the glue that brought the people together, but the, the film is definitely not about Z-Packs. It's not about equipment manufacturing, whatever. It's just how these people happen to meet each other. And what's funny is that they're all they're from all different walks of life. You know, you've got like a 60-year-old guy who's like a former drug addict, right? And then you've got, you know, a, a guy in his 40s who was a uh, an EMT who had like PTSD from, from that experience. And then you've got a guy, you know, Joe, who started this company. You've got Matt. I and mean, basically, they, they just have very, very different backstories. And you, I think in, in normal life, these people would have never become friends. They're just so different. But because of, of you know, Joe starting this company, they all got together, they became friends, and then they started hiking together. And that passion of the outdoors really just kind of, uh, you know, kindled their friendship, I guess. And that's why they're such good friends even today. Cool. Thanks. And how did you find out about this the this trail? I mean, I've been backpacking and pretty knowledgeable in that world, and I had never heard of it before. You started not, you know, started bugging me about, you know, about you making it <laughs> a couple of years ago. Weird, huh? Yeah, it's strange. It's it's right in the center of the United States, right? It's a hundred four mile trail that is goes along the backbone of the Uinta Mountains in northern Utah, right there, and nobody's heard of it. And it's 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 funny, like even the the Forest Service didn't have a good idea of when this trail was created. When the John Muir Trail was created, it was an idea and it was funded. And then they built this trail from start to finish. It was named after a famous guy. It was marketed well. Everybody did it, right? But with the Uinta Mountains, the, the Highline Trail just kind of appeared on the map. It wasn't planned. They just started building pieces at a time. And eventually they realized that all these pieces connected. <laughs> and uh, so, so yeah, this trail just kind of appeared. And sometime in the 30s, they think it might've been finished, but nobody really knows. And uh, I found out about it from Matt, the you know who's over at ZPAX. He you know me and him, me and Matt just started making friends online. He's a camera geek, and I'm a camera geek, and we've been you know kind of learning about it together, I guess. And uh, at some point, he was like, "Hey, want to come do a hike with us?" I'm like, "Sure." I'm like, "Where?" And he's like, uh, "You went to Highland Trail." I'm like, "What the hell is that?" <laughs> and uh, so yeah, it was it was really through Matt. Matt and Matt heard about it from one of his customers, I guess, at ZPAX. 
So we went out there. Actually, he heard about it, I'm sorry, from Steve. Steve's cousin lived in the area. And Steve, who's also in the film. And uh, yeah, just through them, found out about this trail and went over there. I'm like, hey, do you mind if I bring a camera with me? And we'll shoot a little, a little film, you know, it's a little something. And then... Uh, <laughs> yeah. They always start out as little films. Do they? Is that normal? <laughs> yeah, they start little and then they just grow. <laughs> I, I'm kind of I'm kind of weird about the planning of these things. I usually have like a PowerPoint deck of like all the planning stuff that we're doing. And it's funny to look back at the original version. It's like 15 minute film, just, you know, brief synopsis of the trail, you know, whatever. And then now it's 117 minutes. <laughs> and a couple years later, it took like two and a half years to make 15 months of just editing. And yeah, it's, it's a beast of a project. It was huge. I, I did not expect it to turn into this. And yeah, it's been a long journey. It's changed like everything. It's changed my whole life, actually. Like I'm doing this full time now, trying to not make not making money really, but yeah, I've been focusing on this for for a long time now, full time. And Highline is my life. I, you know, all all my good dreams are about Highline. All my bad dreams are about Highline. All you know, all my good waking experiences are usually have uh, Highline involved. So, so speaking of the speaking of the Highline Trail. Uh... In the movie, I saw very few other people. It seems like it was a lot of open space and not a lot of folks. And did you run into a lot of people? And like, how much traffic is there on the Highline Trail? Virtually no traffic. We saw, I think the first four days, we didn't see anybody at all. Eventually, we ran into like two guys near Lighty Peak area. And then we didn't see anybody again until uh, Kings Peak. When we got to Kings Peak, yeah, people. It's kind of like the Mount Whitney of Utah. It's the tallest mountain in Utah, and people will day hike there. And we saw probably close to a dozen people up there. I'm thinking. And then after that, we didn't see anybody <laughs> for a long time again. So it's yeah, it's a very sparsely populated trail. People don't go there. It's it's pretty rough. It's pretty um, adventurous terrain, and it's definitely remote, right? It's logistically, it can be a, a serious challenge to do the trail because you have to get from one side to the other. And we were lucky enough to score a shuttle to do that. But now that shuttle company's out of business. Oh, no. <laughs> so, yeah, so pretty much if you want to do the trail, you have to know somebody in the area. But uh, the Vernal Tourism Board, the Vernal's the, the city right near there. I, I, get, I heard that they had recognized that as an issue and they're trying to figure out ways to uh, solve that for hikers in, in anticipation mm -hmm. for you know the uptick in traffic from this film. I guess they've already gotten some uptick in traffic from this film. Do they have uh, good signage and... You know, is, or do you have to do a lot of, you know, map navigation for this trail? There is some signage and there are, there is trails, um, but there's definitely big sections where there's no trail, where you're just cross country and we just got to find a way to get over there. So I, I would definitely not recommend this as your first hike. That would be a serious adventure if it was going to be your first backpacking trip. But if you're, you know, if you've done the John Muir Trail and you want to do something a little bit more adventurous, this is a great a great trip to do you definitely need to be prepared as far as um, like navigation gps highly recommended to have a map as a backup uh water can be a challenge as you saw from the film the first uh three three days or so and after the first three days you're, you're totally good but that first eastern section is is a challenge for sure is it is it technical at all or is it is it all is the trail pretty well maintained and pretty well groomed it's it's not technical like climbing technical there's no like you know five ten ascents or anything uh but you just you just have to be careful with navigation sometimes especially in the lower elevations because you're going through trees and stuff and you're looking for those little uh you know little blazes on the trees and sometimes you you know think it's a blaze and it's not because a lot of them are axe blazes where they just take an axe and they go chop 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 but then you might see a tree that has a little wound on the side of it and you're like oh Let's go that way. And then you go the wrong way and you're like, damn it, where are we? <laughs> so we had to backtrack a few times. And uh, yeah, it's, it's somewhat technical as far as the navigation aspect of it. But as far as like, you know, climbing goes, there's not a ton of exposures. There's a few areas where you can fall off a cliff, but there's no ropes needed, nothing like that. So what does it travel through? Is it going through wilderness areas, national forest, national park, state park? What kind of, uh, uh, who, who has jurisdiction over this land or is it several places? Uh, two places. It's two national forests. It's the Ashley National Forest and the Uinta Wasatch Cache National Forest. And uh, they they were great to work with. They were very supportive of the film. It's funny, they, you know, the, the national forests are all rolling up to the Department of the Department of Agriculture, right? Versus the, the national parks that roll up to Department of the Interior. 
And it was just such a different experience getting a film permit. You know, getting a, a film permit for the, the Sierra Nevada is like impossible. It's so, so hard. Months of negotiation. And then there's, there's all these rules and they review your footage afterwards. They want you to change things. Um, when it comes to National Forest, they're like, cool, awesome. Yeah, you're, here's some paperwork. <laughs> and I filled it out. And then it was kind of expensive to, to get the permit. And they, they did us some favors there and helped us out to... I'm going to plead the fifth on permit conversations. I'm going to not, I'm just going to stay away from it. (laughs) Permits are, yeah. I mean, technically everybody's supposed to have a permit going into the wilderness. I mean, it's it's a fuzzy rule. There's this act called the Wilderness Act of 1964, and it's of that era, right? 1964. So today, there's a lot of things that don't really apply, but we get shoved into that bucket. I think Jason said it best when he said that, you know, filmmakers are put into the same bucket as like oil drillers and, and loggers. And I mean, when you look at the, the film permit application, it's like, how many, you know, how many semis are you going to bring with you? Like, are you, are you going to be providing your own dumpsters? Like how much drilling are you doing? Like weird, weird questions that shouldn't be in there. Right. So just because it's considered commercial, um, they throw it into that bucket. So that's, that can be a challenge, but luckily the national forest totally got it. They were actually, they were actually kind of happy to, to get more traffic over there because nobody goes there. So they can't get funding in a lot of ways. Some of the, the more popular external area trails like Mirror Lake Highway, for example, that, that gets people, right? People go out there and they camp and they day hike. But as far as doing the trail, you know, the actual Uinta Trail, Uinta Highland Trail proper, not many people do that. And so imagine you're a national forest and you're like, hey, we need funding to take care of this trail. And you go to the Fed and they're like, we're not going to give you any money. Nobody does this trail. Why would we give you like $8 million to take care of this trail that nobody goes on? So yeah, it's, I think it's a challenge for national forests like that, but luckily they have a a cool, they have a group called the Backcountry Horsemen of America and they volunteer and they take care of this whole trail just on horseback. They go out there with chainsaws and uh, there's actually a little tribute to them in the film. And uh, yeah, they, they did a great job. And because of them, we were able to, to do the trail. Without them, it would have been just too, too rough. Would have been, yeah, way too hard. It, it is funny. I have noticed, you know, having made one documentary in very heavily traveled parks and jurisdictions versus one in, you know, the No Attack, which was made in Gates of the Arctic. And they were incredibly accommodating. Um, and also having dealt with the Canadian Park Service going up to Olavic, which gets like, 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 like 12 people a year go there. If, if some years, no one goes there. Um, they're, they really, it's funny how much they want people. So rather than trying to fight people off, they want people to come and they want exposure again. So they can kind of, I think some of them worry about like, oh, Hey, they found oil underneath your park. And then that, you know, if there isn't like a desire or, or, or like a, um, you know, people don't need awareness of it, then people, you know, people aren't, you know, it's much harder to, to keep the park. So yeah, it is, it is an interesting uh, difference. So I guess if you want to make a project and you can, you know, base it or plan to do it somewhere that isn't heavily trafficked, you, you know, you, you probably have a better shot of getting permits and, and getting it done versus, you know, if you want to do, go in the, you know, the bigger, more, more populated uh, national parks. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, if you think about like Yosemite, right? I mean, they're they're yeah. covered with well, there's nobody there now, but normally it's it's got oh. so many people there all the time. The park service is like, don't make a film here. More people are going to come. We've already got millions of people coming. We can't handle that. They're trashing the place. So, yeah, I get it. You know, I mean, I don't entirely agree with the way that it's handled, but um, but you know, I, I get it. I get why they they're more resistant to the idea of, of films in national parks versus more obscure places. I was curious, did you, uh, Chris, did you encounter any resistance uh, or arguments against promoting an area by some people who were like, hey, this is our secret spot. You know, don't, we don't want more people to know about it. We don't want people to come here. This is, this is like our, our mountains. Very little, luckily. Mostly everybody was proud to share it. Because I, I think a lot of the, the locals there are like, oh, you know, the Uinta Mountains, maybe when they're talking to other people and people are like, what, the Uinta what? Yeah. No, nobody knows about this beautiful place that they have and they have it like all to themselves. And luckily they were, they were very supportive and very uh, proud to share what was in their backyard. That was 99.999% of the response. I That's think awesome. we had, in fact, I want to say when we had one person that I could think of, maybe two that showed up online, they're like, don't share the secret. This is our place. Don't let anybody go there. We don't want it to get crowded and turn into the John Muir trail. And I mean, that's, that's, 
a somewhat valid concern that we, you know, we did have those discussions with both national force involved and they were, yeah. In, in the end, we concluded that, you know, even if it caused, you know, a thousand people to go hike this trail, that's nothing, you know, that, that's not going to hurt the trail. I mean, and the people that would attempt a trail that's as difficult as this one, aren't going to be beginners that are going to go out there and bringing a 12 pack of beer and, and throwing the bottles around. Right. It's, it's going to be people that are more experienced that, theoretically care more about the location and would want to take care of it. We, something we made sure to, to convey in the film was that it wasn't easy. You know, one of the, well, I don't want to ruin the film, but these are very experienced people. Like one of the guys in the film is arguably one of the most experienced hikers in the world. And he had challenges. So given that, you know, we tried to make sure we conveyed those things. We didn't sugarcoat anything. We didn't say, hey, everybody should come out here and do this. We just said, this is an awesome trail. It's beautiful, but there's definitely challenges. Watch out. And uh, yeah, hopefully that, that came through in the, in the finished film. And hopefully people who attempt it would be extra cautious because of it. And hopefully it'll only attract people that are super nice to the environment there. Was it a self-supported trip, Chris? self-supported so did you have like food drops or were there like towns that you came across because you said it's really remote or was it you had everything for the whole time and that was it that's a good question we uh were fortunate enough so we made some friends over there ahead of time just through researching and stuff and a friend had a friend and he was kind enough to without knowing us just heard about the project went to get involved and support it and he was kind enough to bring us the food drop at a place called Chipita Lake. So on day four, yeah, day four, we got a food drop. And without that, it would have been seriously challenging. I mean, everybody on the hike was really ultralight. We're, yeah, yeah, we're those guys, right? We're, we're the geeky ones. You know, we cut the labels off of everything. You know, we cut our <laughs> toothbrushes in half. We're, the, we're those geeky people, right? And, uh, but with this, with this film, we had to carry, you know, all this camera gear. And we had 11 lenses, all these cameras. We had like tons and tons of batteries. And uh, all these ultralight guys that were with us, uh, we were using them as mules. So they were all carrying like four plus pounds of batteries. We had gimbals and all sorts of stuff. And uh, so we weren't lightweight by any means. So carrying 10 days worth of food and then all the camera gear on top of it would be like crazy challenge. But luckily the super nice guy named Aaron Averett um, was kind enough to bring us a food drop on day four. And I think... If you didn't have camera gear, <laughs> um, you could probably knock out the trail in like seven days. We did in 10 days. We wanted to kind of take our time, but honestly, didn't feel like we were going slow because it was, you know, technical terrain. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I think a normal person, because <laughs> we're not normal, a normal person could do it in a week and then do, do it without a resupply. But uh, yeah, if you're filming a, a movie. What were you sort of, what was your average mile days? Uh, we averaged anywhere from like, it was kind of all over the place. Um, I think our longest day was like four, 13, 14 miles. So not bad. Yeah. I mean, our shortest day was probably like seven miles. Yeah. So it just depended. But the train made it feel longer. And when you're route finding, you know, when, when you're on the John Muir Trail, you could do 15 plus miles and it's like, it's fine. You, you just look down, you follow that path and you're good. With this thing, it's like you have to stop. Like, okay, where are we? What peak is that? What is that over there? And then the train is definitely... You know, it's, it's tougher. A lot of squiggle factor. Squirrel factor? Squiggle factor. It's when you're planning your trip. And so you have like elevation and you have mileage, which is pretty st standard. But then the squiggle factor is terrain. It's navigation. It's the people in the group. Like, so it sounds like there's lots of squiggle, squiggle, squiggle. in there. De de definitely lots of squiggling. Yeah. <laughs> and plus we had, to, we had to stop and shoot a lot. What's funny is the guys in the film, the, the you know, the five hikers that we follow, these, these mofos, man, they'll hike 30, 40 miles a day. They're like serious hikers. I mean, one of the guys holds the record for hiking all the trails in the Smokies. He did all 900 something miles in like 40 days or something. So, I mean, these, these are fast hikers. And when we had a couple of conference calls ahead of time and we're like, dude, like, please go, go slow. I know you want to do 30 plus miles, but we're carrying all this camera gear. We're going to have camera gear on you as well. Let's just keep this down to like, you know, 10 ish miles a day. And luckily they were kind enough to, uh, you know, to, to do that and that made it a little bit more easier to shoot but even still though it was it was tough to keep up with them while switching lenses you know I'm walking down the trail trying to pull out a lens and put onto my camera and change that as as we're going and yeah i think i end up using the zoom lens a lot more because of that is there a lot of you know like running up ahead setting up a shot you know okay guys go <laughs> <laughs> there was definitely uh i would say we did that about five or six times 
where I had to, you know, stop them and run ahead. Ah, but maybe, maybe more like a dozen times. Pretty much whenever they took a break, I tried to get ahead and get ready to get shots of them coming, you know, up the trail. Um, honestly, there wasn't a lot of staged stuff. It was more just kind of reactive. This, this is a group of guys that have known each other forever, right? And, and Gordy and I, Gordy was the co-director of the film. He came with us. Um, we were just kind of guests, right? And we got to know them along the way, but... It was, it was really just them chatting a lot and we had to be prepared to capture whatever they did, right? So it was constantly like, they would start talking and we whip out the cameras real quick and try to capture what we could. Some of it was just, you know, chatter that didn't matter and some of it we felt added to the story. So we kept that. But yeah, we always had to be on guard and make sure that we were ready to pull out the cameras on a, on a second's notice. How many hours of footage did you start with? Like how many did you capture on the trip? Oh man, uh, we had... Oh, Four terabytes of compressed H.264 footage. Mm-hmm. Okay, for, for somebody who doesn't know video, what is that? <laughs> what the heck does that mean? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how to calculate that into hours, but I'm going to guess like oh, hundreds and hundreds of hours. Hundreds of hours. I mean, I was, I was burning a 128 gig memory card at least one a day yeah. and going through four plus batteries a day. So, yeah, sorry, I'm trying to translate that into hours, and I don't know how to do that, but a lot. <laughs> I, I was probably shooting four, probably four plus hours a day. Eh, three, maybe three hours worth of footage a day. And then afterwards, we had all the footage of the interviews, right? And those were all like four-hour interviews that we, you know, obviously chopped up for, you know, during the actual edit. And uh, then some B-roll stuff we went back and got. So, yeah, a lot. Hundreds and hundreds of hours is my best guess. <laughs> but a... <laughs> An amount that was so crazy that my laptop turned into this Frankenstein beast. I've got like three hard drives that were just, you know, Velcroed to the back of it. And it was tough because like whenever I tried to move, sometimes a, a drive would disconnect. I'd be like, no, what if it corrupts? What if it destroys the film? So media management was a major challenge. I, I'd never dealt with that before. I mean, Jason's dealt with it a million times, I'm sure. But for me, being a, a new filmmaker, I'm used to like 20-minute film. Maybe a 40-minute film would be a big project for me. And, but two hours is a whole new beast. I was killing my poor laptop. So a lot of people may have seen your, your last film, which was uh, the High Sierra Trail. And um, a lot of differences between the two films. Firstly, you are sort of the filmmaker and the subject in High Sierra Trail, or one of them. And in this one, you're pretty much behind the camera. We, don't, we see little glimpses of you a couple times, I think, but otherwise you're behind the camera. How was that different? What was the experience like, and and uh, how, how do the, how does how does that um, how are those two movies different in that way? Uh, I, I thought <laughs> I always feel awkward. People say that I'm good on camera. I think they're just being nice. Usually, it's my friends that say that. <laughs> but I, I no comment. <laughs> <laughs> but I just feel like. I don't know, like the the five people, the five characters in the story, they all have really interesting stories. And they're, I, I just wouldn't, my story's just not as interesting as theirs. And if I was in the film, I think I would have screwed it up. I think I would have, I mean, when there's like moments of seriousness, I would have like thrown in a fart joke or something and screwed it up. And it, it just would, it would have been stupid. <laughs> so having me out of it was just great. And I could focus on the camera. The part I love the most, I mean, some people like love hosting and, and you know, Greg Ilo, for example, he loves being in front of the camera. I'm, I'm more of a, I came from an engineering background, right? So I like the technical aspect of the camera stuff. I like the strategizing and the planning and then the playing with the camera part. It's, it's a big game for me. It's just toys that I get to play with. And uh, so, yeah, I, I like it better that way. I got, I got to focus on the stuff that I like doing and focus on capturing stuff versus worrying about what I needed to say in front of a camera. And the selfie camera thing is always awkward for me anyways. It's like, hey... Hi, you know, I'm, some of those YouTuber guys, you know, they're they're so used to that. They're like, "What's up, everybody?" <laughs> and they could they could selfie themselves on on video. And uh, I'm just not as good at that. It feels weird. It feels awkward. So you brought up toys. You brought up toys. So now we get a bore. Or most of I'd say eighty percent of our, at least of our audience and my two co-hosts. And let's let's talk about some gear. What cameras you use? What lenses you brought? Like what other pieces of gear did you find helpful in the filmmaking process? Yeah, well, first of all, I should I should preface this by saying it's it's almost it's weird to be interviewed by you guys because like Jason's like my hero, man. Well, first of all, you know Jeff Hester's awesome. He starts Six Pack of Peaks. He's you know cool dude, but Jason really 
kicked this off for me. Like Jason, with, when he created Mile Mountain Half with, you know, with the Mirror Project, that like blew my mind. I'm like, wow, that's amazing. I want to do that. How do I do that? I remember pinging him years ago, like cheesy videos made with my GoPro. I'm like, hey, dude, check out my GoPro video. And it was like some terrible video I did of like being out in the outdoors. So it's weird to be now like considered a, a real filmmaker being interviewed by you guys. But anyways, <laughs> um, going back to your question, the, uh, as far as the gear, it was the stuff that you recommended to me a couple of years ago, uh, the Sony cameras. So I used a, my, I would say 70% of the film was shot on the Sony a6500. Tiny little camera, it's only $1,000, lightweight. It's, it's a great camera. It burns batteries like crazy, so that's kind of a bummer. But it's, besides that, it's a great camera. And we shot uh, everything, or about 70% of the film on that. And Gordy shot a bunch on the Sony a7R2. And between those cameras, um, you know, that covered most of what we captured. There's a few GoPro shots here and there. There's some cell phone footage here and there. But for the most part, it was, it was those cameras. And uh, we shot an S-Log. Uh, sorry, I don't, I, don't know, I don't know how geeky you want to get it, but we shot an S-Log no, no, too. I, yeah. But we shot in a format that was um, enabled the colorist, Bruce Goodman, who also colored Mile, Mile and a Half. Um, mm-hmm. We shot in a format that allowed him to draw more out of the finished result. So that, that helped a lot. And uh, yeah, yeah, it was... We bought 11 lenses, which is kind of excessive. It's a uh, we lot. Used, it's a lot. It's a lot. Luckily, yeah. we had people to spread them out on, sure. uh, but we used them all. But the challenge was like on the go, we couldn't swap. I, I had four lenses on me, and I was constantly swapping between those things. But I couldn't really pull out the other lenses until we got into camp. So that was yeah. kind of a limiting factor. Um, but yeah, we did, you know, we shot on, I brought everything from super wide, telephoto super wide lenses obviously to capture the wide landscape all the way up to you know telephoto lenses i bought a cheap little telephoto lens little sony 55 to 210 millimeter um it looks like the looks like a little beer can sized lens and it was like 200 bucks on ebay or something and that's how we got some of the the wildlife shots actually you recommend jason recommended this uh, little handy cam a couple years ago or something called the sony ax53 and that's probably a good camera for a lot of backpackers who aren't really camera geeks who just want to get good footage. So this little handy cam looks like a little, like a soccer dad's cam, I call it. It's got a built-in stabilizer and it's got a 200 millimeter reach. So with that thing, we were able to get a lot of the wildlife shots. And uh, Matt, who's with us, got the cool, you know, infamous, I'm calling them infamous, these cool shots of a moose in the film uh, with that 200 millimeter zoom reach. Are, are you sure it was a moose? Is that the consensus? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> well, especially towards, yeah, both times. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't want to ruin the film. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, that, that kind of worked out great. So that's probably a good one for, you know, a lot of, a lot of backpackers who want to go out there and stuff, but don't want to bring a GoPro. They want to get something a little bit nicer, more flexible, but don't want to bring, don't want to deal with a fancy, expensive camera. The little handy cam is pretty cool, the AX53. Chris, how did you protect all how did you protect all that gear? Because you said you guys were this is an ultralight crew. And so, you know, usually ultralight is like tarps and you know, for people who don't know, ultralight backpacking is minimalist, um, in the sense of it's you know, you're not bringing your big tent with the flyer, it's you know, tarps and other bivvies and quilts versus sleeping bags. So how did you manage to stay ultralight ish and still protect all that gear? Good question. So something I really like about Z packs is that they a long time ago, not even that like years ago, there was this mentality that if you want to be ultralight, you had to just, just have like one little tarp, right. And you had to like make that work and bugs were going to get you and stuff. Z packs allows you to have the comforts without dealing with that. They should pay me for this endorsement, <laughs> but it's, I mean, the Z packs tents we were using were fully enclosed. So it's pretty cool. I mean, we had full protection. There's no bugs getting us. It's like a regular tent. So it's, it allows you to almost be a cheater at ultralight backpacking without having the weight. I mean, my tent is 15 ounces fully enclosed and it's been through the craziest storms I've ever experienced and no issues at all. Um, but that said, hiking with the gear was probably the biggest challenge. And we used a lot of Cuban fiber. Sorry, they renamed it DCF Dyneema composite fabric, whatever. DCF. DCF. I'm going to call it Cuban fiber. FedEx envelopes. It's, it's FedEx envelopes, basically, is what Oh, it yeah, is. yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I, I used a lot of uh, just ultralight stuff sacks and stuff and kept everything in there. And yeah, a lot of Ziploc bags, tons of Ziploc bags. <laughs> and luckily, we were able to keep things dry. Whenever it started coming down, though, which was often, we had to just put everything away and only use the GoPro for that because you know you don't want to drench your you know two thousand three thousand dollar camera as someone that killed 
I killed two Sonys basically in the uh, in the Arctic. Uh, you know, my A7R2, which I fixed, but it was thousand dollars to fix it. And uh, my A6500 was about eighty percent dead, and then the Wonderland Trail <laughs> finished it off when we were ago. But it basically did it too. So yeah, they've actually improved. They have Sony has them. The newer models are much better with the weatherproofing. Um, other brands like Nikon and Canon are are have you know been better with weatherproofing. Um, one thing I say is don't trust the dry bags are big and don't trust the, the sort of thin ones get like the real, it sucks to carry the extra weight, but you know, one small one will, will take most of your gear that is really, really needs the protection, like your, your camera bodies and, and anything else like really electronic, just get one good, good, decent sized, you know, thick, heavy, really waterproof one that like the the, the rafting versions and, and keep your gear in there I, that's what i that's from here on out that's what i'm going to do i'm not going to trust the little thin you know supposedly waterproof ones because i did and they and they and they it didn't you know, work <laughs> no they didn't you know i i made a similar mistake and luckily it turned out well i was hiking with i was in yosemite with greg ilo and darwin you know he's kind of a big guy on youtube mm -hmm. and uh my friend panda and I don't know where the storm hits us and it was like just pouring rain this whole time. But I had my A6500 in a nice little waterproof pouch on my chest and I get to camp and I realize it's drenched. And we actually had, to, it was so bad that four experienced hikers had to bail. <laughs> we get to a hotel and I unscrew the lens and just water pours out of it. Just tons, yeah. just, I'm like, oh shit, like this camera's destroyed. Yeah. I let it dry overnight. It was fine. I don't, I don't know what miracle happened, but my camera was fine, so I'm happy about that. But it wasn't right. just a few drops. It was a lot. There was like... Oh, wow. Yeah, on the sensor even, huh? On the sensor, all inside wow. of there. Yeah. Crazy. I don't even know how it got in there. Did you clean the sensor? <laughs> We're getting extra nerdy again, too. But, oh, wow, it's nice you didn't even have... Usually, I would say if you clean the sensor, maybe. But that's crazy that it worked and it dried off. Yeah, I was worried about water spots and stuff, but now it's yeah. fine. It looked, looked great. So. Oh, cool. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> you went into it a little bit, but I guess... You know, maybe, again, talk to us about how you got started and what, what's been your experience now that you're, you know, you, you've gone and made this more your, your sort of life, you know, your, your, your career, I guess. Uh, yeah, well, I guess it started in, in 2016. I went out and I hiked the John Muir Trail and uh, I brought along a little GoPro and a little Sony RX100. Didn't even know how to use those at the time. I just kind of would, you know, hit auto, hit record and hike the trail and I kind of documented things along the way not putting a whole lot of effort into it, finished the trail, got back home. And that experience, as Jason knows, as actually all you guys, I think have, have done it. Uh, that experience of being on the John Muir trail was so awesome to me that I just wanted to commemorate it somehow and just kind of capture that experience so I could replay it uh, besides in my head. And so I just started editing these, you know, this footage. I, I hesitate to call it footage because it was just a bunch of random video clips because I didn't know what I was doing. And that's how I just started learning to edit. And then a couple months later, um, and my wife's saying like, why are you always on your computer playing with this stupid stuff? And a couple months later, I, <laughs> I finished this little short film. Um, this, you know, really it's a 39 minute, or it's like a 40 minute video about the John Muir Trail. And I posted it on YouTube and it got a big response and people were really happy about it. And I was like, hey, that's, that's kind of fun. So maybe I'll do more. And I just started doing more, more projects and started, um, actually right after that, I pinged, Jason here for advice on camera stuff and he suggested a few things and I ended up buying the Sony a7R2 forked out like 20 I think it was $2,800 for the body and then, then, and then yeah and then lenses so by the end I'd spent like five grand and I didn't know anything about camera stuff I'm like I just spent a lot of money I better learn how to use this stuff you know? <laughs> so my wife's gonna kill me <laughs> so I just started like learning how to use the stuff, getting more into it. And then the next project I shot was with the nicer cameras. It came out better. And then, you know, I went from uh, making a short film called Alcove to making a film called, what did I do after that? Ray Lakes. Made a short film called Ray Lakes that went out on YouTube. Responses were all pretty positive. So I decided to just kind of, you know, keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And uh, to the point where we got to, uh, where we got to Highline and which is my first feature length endeavor. When I started, this was just like me screwing around with a GoPro, right? And now it's like, there's like seven, seven other people involved with the Outmersive crew. I mean, I hesitate to call it like, we're not like a company, right? We're not like this big established company making all this money, everybody's on payroll. We don't really have that, but it's more like a collective of friends. I'm, I'm guessing similar to the Mirror Project. 
Yeah, very much so. Yeah. Okay. Okay. It's like a collective of friends. We just kind of get together and, and do these things and it's, it's fun. It's cool. And uh, as far as what we're going to do next after Highline, I don't know. We've, we've. Take a break. <laughs> yeah. Take, take a break for a while. You know, maybe hang out at home for a couple of months. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, um, yeah, right. yeah, right. Yeah. We're all stuck here anyways. <laughs> but I don't know what we're going to do next. But yeah, that was kind of the evolution, though. It just kind of happened. And I, I came from a, like I said, I came from a, a tech world, right? I mean, I worked in high tech for 20 years. I'm only 40, but I worked in high tech for 20 years. So to stray from that is kind of a weird feeling. I feel like very adrift the last, you know, year and a half where I've been focusing on this full time. Um, not sure how it's going to end. We'll see. Yeah. And, and, you know, I try to be as positive as yet realistic as, as possible with people when they, because I do get hit up quite a bit with people asking questions and, and what it's like. And I think people have assumptions that it's it's easy and that, A, making the film is easy, making it good is easy, which it is not. And I'm sure Chris, you'll back me up on that. And B, like, once you have it, like getting it out to the world and distribution and all that stuff is incredibly difficult. Marketing, it's so much work and it's incredibly difficult. And I hate to bring up a bad memory here, Chris, but, but do you want to maybe go into what happened to you with Highline and, 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 and how it kind of got, how you basically got, you know, were robbed blindly by this company? Uh, oh, High Sierra Trail? Yeah. yeah. Oh, uh, <laughs> how in detail are you allowed to? Are you allowed to talk about it legally? I don't know. Um, I think I'm allowed to talk about that. Okay, yeah, I don't. Yeah. I don't have a contract with them. Maybe we just don't name the name of the company. We say the distribution company, and yes, leave the actual name out. So yeah, that was a. So I mean, what Jason was saying, it's it's hard. You put a lot. I mean, it's it's not just like a week of hard work. It's like months and months and months, years sometimes can go to these films. Blood, sweat, tears. When something goes crying, you're having nightmares. And just when you think it's okay, something else goes wrong. So it's, it's tough. A lot goes into these things. And when you finally finish it, that film means a lot to you because so much went into it. And we were fortunate enough with, uh, with my last film, High Sierra Trail. To, it's a short film. I didn't know how serious it was going to be taken. But luckily, we did score a, a small distribution deal. It's a very, you know, it's a, it's a distribution deal for beginners, basically. And they got the film. They put it out on iTunes. Amazon, Google Play, it was making sales, it was doing pretty good. And um, one day, and then all of a sudden I was like, hey, like, it's been like six months, shouldn't I have been paid by now? And I'm sending emails and I go, yeah, we'll get to you, we're, we're working on it. Two weeks later, hey, still haven't heard anything. A couple weeks later, email them again, and just, just, for some reason, just nobody's responding. And all of a sudden I see this forum pop up as a suggestion on Facebook. It's like, you know, uh, it's like people against this distributor which is the distributor I was with. And I, I connected to it and I realized there was thousands of people who had been robbed by these guys. And then maybe a month later, I think it wasn't, yeah, about a month later, actually, I think I got the link from Jason Fitzpatrick. It hit the LA times that these guys had just decided to just shut down. So after all that hard work and the success of getting a distribution deal and getting your film out online and promoting it and doing all that work and having the sales do pretty well for a small film, they just decided to shut down and keep everybody's money. So I never got a single check, nothing, not a penny. Yeah. And I, and, and in your defense, let's, let's say people can want to criticize it, but much bigger films and bigger companies with like million, million dollar plus like productions also got caught in this scam. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's an, you, it's an incredibly hard thing. It's not like Chris did something wrong and didn't do his due diligence. I mean, they had, they had like what seemed to be reputable backing from companies and everything. And it was kind of like, I remember in the indie world, everyone was like, oh, this is great that this, that we've been waiting for a company like this. And everyone was touting them and, and basically they, they're scam artists. So, I mean, it's, it's a hard thing. And it's, it's really sad that that happened to you after all that hard work. It was, dude, it was, I drank a lot that night. It was, it was a heartbreaking thing to have happen. And, you know, my film, what made me feel better, which it shouldn't make me feel better. I almost feel bad for this, but I spent seven grand of my own money for, you know, coloring, for post audio, for film permits. And then obviously thousands of hours of my own time to make this film. So that seven grand, I was going to recoup and we, we made enough to, to recoup that. And it, I never got it back and I was devastated, but I'm seeing all these other films. Like uh, there's a movie called Range 15, Range, thir Range 13, had William Shatner in it. Like the director had hired all these major actor actors, right? So this guy had paid millions of dollars to film crews, to actors, all sorts of, you know, people, and then didn't get a penny for it. 
Like yeah. the, the company just shut down. They're like, yeah, sorry, peace. And the worst, the, to add insult to injury, they left the films online and, ca- and continued to collect sales for months afterwards. In fact, I think right. I see trail is still on some of the platforms. I think it's, I think it's still on iTunes. I think people are still buying it and just paying this evil company. Yeah. So, Hey, if you want to watch high Sierra trail and you're listening to this, buy it from Chris directly. It is available directly from you digitally, right? Yeah. It's on Vimeo. So if you, if you find high yeah. trail and Vimeo or high has that film yeah. and you can get it there. Normally iTunes and those are fine. I'm not saying not to use those, but generally speaking, I, I will say if you want to support an artist, especially smaller operations, like say us, the mirror project, you know, or, or Chris's, um, if you can just take that extra little step, find them directly and purchase it directly from the artist. This is the same goes for music. Um, almost any other kind of art that actually, you know, there's a, it's great that there are all these companies like Amazon and, and they help us distribute and get the word out because many people find it that wouldn't otherwise. But if you are able to find the artist and buy directly, then, you know, you know, 95 to plus percent of the money then goes to the artists and, you know, as opposed to the middlemen who, who are great, but do take a pretty big cut. So just, just a little uh, public service announcement for all of our, our listeners out there. Totally agree with that statement. <laughs> Luckily, Highline did not go through that distributor, though. Highline is through a new distributor, a fairly reputable yeah. one, so we should be good to go there. Good, yeah. yeah. It's actually the same company that did uh, Donwall. The Donwall. Oh, nice. Yeah, That's so great. I mean, yeah. yeah, so they should be good, despite some of the challenges we've had. But yeah, but besides that, we're good. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's always hard. And even like, I think other people don't understand like like you're running into some issues with with the the quality control issues with with distributors and and that's hard i mean you spend a lot of money to have professionals even color correct and and do your audio mixing and stuff that doesn't always work out and a lot of times even like big time senior like big time features will sometimes have apple or some of these other companies kick back their product because it doesn't pass quality control for some little small thing so that that's a big issue that that maybe a lot of people that want to do this and think that it's easy don't necessarily understand and again, I don't want to discourage people from making films or doing it. Just kind of what I do like to do is like let people know what they're in for if they want to do it and, and understand how much work it really is. And, you know, again, I guess generally anything that's done well kind of looks like it's easy, but but it doesn't, you know, it's a lot of work and a lot of whatever to make things look like they're made easily, even though they're not. I don't know if that made sense. I'm sorry. It, uh, it makes sense <laughs> to me. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of... A lot of pain, ulcers, and gray hairs go into things that are good. Hey, so Chris, I got a question for you. So when you are um, out, you know, taking a trip, you know, backpacking or hiking or whatever, are you always sort of in the back of your mind, you know, working? Or do you ever get to just kind of unplug and be, you know, hey, I'm just here for the enjoyment of this trail or this, uh, or this trip? That's, that's a funny question. I have a funny story with that. So I didn't know I was ultralight. Right. Cause my, I mean, every time I pulled something out of my pack to save weight, it was to make room for camera stuff. So I was like lightweight ish, but I was usually maintaining 35 plus pounds, 35 to 40 pounds on my back, which is a lot for me. I'm not that strong, whatever. And eventually, I mean, and every trip was like, like you said, it was like shooting, I was shooting some sort of project or doing whatever. I was always filming in some way. And then finally last year, I think it was January, February last year, I did a hike with Matt from Z-Packs, me and a couple other guys, Bigfoot and others. And it was my first trip without any camera gear where I didn't get into work mode, I guess. Not that I consider it work, but I didn't, I didn't do any filming whatsoever. I didn't bring any camera gear. And we did a five-day trip in Florida. My pack was like 19 pounds with food and water. Which is a good thing because of all the mountains in Florida are really hard to climb. I mean, <laughs> was like, that was the weirdest thing ever, man. It, it was exactly what you would expect. It was just the flattest thing ever. And like it was walking through swamps. It was just like like you would expect. It was, it was interesting. It was, I would never do it by myself. Um, but to do it with friends, it was fun. So, yeah. I mean, yes. I didn't, well, I didn't see any, um, but there was definitely warning signs next to all the, we hiked along the Suwannee River and there was like warning signs everywhere saying, don't get in the water. There's alligators. You'll get eaten. Stuff like that. Were you way down along the Suwannee River? <laughs> That's a very old song. Oh, man. <laughs> That's like, yeah. <laughs> Might be That's before like, my time. Jeff bought that album in the 20s when it came out. <laughs> 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 Poor Jeff. <laughs> but man, I, it was great to like just hiking without camera gear. I, I'm, since then, I made a point to 
do a few more trips without camera stuff. And dude, it's so easy to hike when there's not like 20 pounds of camera stuff on your back. It's great. And yeah, I want to do more of those. And I planned, you know, to celebrate Highland being finished, I had planned this really elaborate parallel route of the Jamir Trail. So I wasn't going to go on the Jamir Trail. I was going to just parallel it, starting in Yosemite, random side trails, some cross-country stuff, and 200-something miles later, I was going to end up south of Whitney at, at Horseshoe Meadows. So basically, I'd be doing the JMT, but without being on the JMT proper. Plan this for a long time. And a route like that takes time to plan, right? And I'd, I'd been playing that for a long time, getting all my gear ready, and then, you know, the virus hits. And I hope I could still do that trip. I don't know. I it, I planned it for July. We'll see. But on that trip, I, I probably will not bring a camera. That will be a great thing to do. Well, maybe I will. Maybe I'll bring one camera. You know, one nice thing that they are, and I, I mean, again, you and I have probably both spent way more money on lenses than any human being should. But they are actually, some of these newer Zooms are, are pretty good, pretty nice lenses, and they're lighter and smaller. So there's, there's a couple I've been eyeing that I'm like, okay, if I buy this one lens, I'll just have that lens, and that's all I'm going to bring with the camera body you know, some batteries and cards and not, not bring like four lenses, five lenses. I, I feel like it's getting to the place where now they're starting to, you know, you, you can kind of make it with, with a little bit less gear, you know? I mean, Sony has these, there's, there's a couple cheap alternatives for zoom lenses during the day that are 2.8. So I mean, or F, F 2.8, uh, basically semi good and low light for the normal non camera geek person. And those lenses are awesome throughout the day, but then at like six or seven o'clock PM, they, become useless so if you go to bed by then it's fine but if you want you want to get cool milky way shots you need a faster wider lens all right one one wide prime and then like a zoom lens for the rest of it that, that's it no more though no more that's all i'm bringing and a couple extra batteries and some filters maybe that's it and filters there. <laughs> and, and a tripod and a gimbal yeah. and a slider and a drone although you can't fly them anywhere anyway so what's the point yeah Oh, that's something I should specify because we, we get that question a lot. Um, we're not supposed to use any drones in the wilderness and, and Highline was fully permitted. So the drone-ish shots that you see were not actually drone footage. It was, it was actually a, uh, a gimbal attached with a camera attached to the top of a tracking pole. So a little stabilizer camera thingy on top of a tracking pole that I was holding above my head. So with my, you know, five, ten, almost six feet, plus this four foot trekking pole, plus the camera on top of that. I was able to get these really high up shots that look like a drone, but I promise or not, we followed all the rules, we're good. The only time we used any drone footage was from the road outside of the, the uh, national forest where it was legal. So we totally didn't break any rules there, totally good. Just, just saying. No, it's good. You'll probably still get reported, but <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. It's, good. it's good to clarify that. And it's good because I mean, the people, I, I get that question and I always tell people, I'm like, like, Hey, I'm not going to, it's not my job to tell you what to do and what not to do, but that's certainly something I would not do. And you're probably going to get caught because there are a lot of, you know, you can debate whether they're right or wrong, but there are a lot of people that, that they do, if they see something and, and it's a drone shot where there's not supposed to be one, they do report you and they have like sites and the national park service has an investigative unit. They have a hotline and, and a lot of people, you know, most people deserve getting reported for a lot of the stuff they've done. Like some people, it's been vandalism. It's been, you know, on social media and or people flying drones where they're not supposed to. So, so you know, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, one, you shouldn't and because it's not allowed and there's good reasons why it's not allowed. And two, you probably will get caught. So it's just kind of all around not a very good idea. I, I just don't want to carry it on my back. I, I don't, yeah. first of all, I don't own a drone. So I didn't want to fork out the money for something I wouldn't use that often. And I don't want to carry it on my back too. It's like, uh enough stuff to carry a funny story we actually did a film festival couple about a year ago or something and it was it was for i think it was for high sierra trail and there was a couple of films back to back and sometimes they'll have multiple filmmakers come up to the front of the stage to do the qa with with the audience and the the other film used a drone in the wilderness it was actually a trail running film and they had, it was a great film, you know, but they did use a lot of drone footage out there. So me and him were up there and all the questions are coming from the audience. And then the question came up about the drone with him and dude, they were ripping him. It was, it was awkward. People were like, don't you know, that's, you know, that's disrupting wildlife. That's breaking the rules. And it, it got really weird. I'm just kind of sitting there like, okay, well, I will be very careful never to use a drone in the future. <laughs> yeah. People are serious about that. And yeah, like you said, it's, you know, for good reason, you don't want to scare away any you know, endangered species or whatever, freak out any animals that, you know, don't want to get messed with. <laughs> yeah, sure. So, so Chris, do you have any bucket list adventures uh, in the future? 
or things that maybe aren't on the planning stage yet, but you know, you'd like to do at some point? I want to do the Wind River Range. That sounds a lot of fun to me. Seems like I heard it's beautiful. I've never done it. It's beautiful. Yeah. Have yeah, you done it? I have actually. I don't know if I don't know if you know this, but there is a Fitzpatrick Wilderness uh, in the Wind Range. So I, I had to do a pilgrimage. I've only done one overnight there, and it was a real short one. Um, but there's some amazing stuff there. Um, and uh, one thing, it's it's hard. It's I think the overnight I did was very pretty, but there's a lot of like you're you know. You're very deep. You're 10 days in and there's no one else out there kind of stuff out there. So I, I, that's definitely, I want to do a longer trip out there. Um, it's in Wyoming for, for those who don't know. But yeah, Fitzpatrick Wilderness, I had to at least see it. So I don't know if you dig deep in my uh, Instagram account, you'll see, I think you'll see a trail sign and a couple pictures. Are, is it actually named after, is it named after somebody in your family or is it just? No, no. So one of the, um, I'm, I, you know, it's funny. I, I, I looked it up and I think I confirmed that w- there was a famous mountain man named Tom Fitzpatrick who was uh, with like uh, uh, Jim Bridger and, and kind of all those original fur trapping mountain men. And he was actually the first mountain man to lead a wagon train across the Rocky mountains out West. So he was kind of a very well-known mountain man. And I believe that's, I'm, I'm 90% sure that it was named after him. Oh, cool. Yeah. But you never know. It might've just been some like bureaucrat. It's kind of funny. Like, so many of these things are named after like surveyors, bosses and things like right? Mount Whitney. That's that Josiah Whitney is named after the bot, you know, the surveyor's boss, you know, so there's so many of those kind of the things boss. also, you know, you know, <laughs> he never even climbed that mountain yet. <laughs> no, he never even saw it apparently. So, so you never know, you never know, you never know who it is. It could be like an, uh, you know, the boss, you know, surveyor's boss or something like that as well. But I, I thought I saw that it was named, it was named after Tom Fitzpatrick. So, yeah. Which, as far as I know, there's no relation. So there's there's more Fitzpatrick's than you'd think. <laughs> well, if you ever go out there and hike the whole thing, bring me with you. I will. I will. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey, Chris, it's been really a pleasure talking to you today. I, uh, if people want to find out more about your film or how to get in touch with you, where, where can they go? Uh, highlinefilm.com. Highlinefilm.com. Everything's there. You, there's links to uh, you know where to purchase the film. You can get DVDs if you want to. There's links to Amazon, all that stuff there, information. And, or if you just want to reach out and say hi, it's all there too. So, so that or uh, outmurse out of films on social media. I was gonna say Emma would be mad if you didn't if 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 you probably didn't didn't she would outmurse, so, yeah. <laughs> cool. Thanks so much for having me, guys. It's been fun. Yeah. Totally appreciate it. Well, that's going to do it for us. Please make sure to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on social media on Instagram at almost there underscore AP or the Almost There Adventure podcast on Facebook. You can find Severia at Adventurous Women. That's Adventure US Women. Jeff at The SoCal Hiker or me at The Muir Project. Our title track, Almost There, is performed by Opus Orange and is provided courtesy of Emoto. On our next episode, we talk to self-defense instructor Nicole Snell about defending yourself in the outdoors. As always, thanks for listening.